The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with John Thomas Flynn, who is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Ask the CIO, SLED edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, John Thomas Flynn. Welcome, everyone. Our guest today is Ed Toner, Chief Information Officer of the State of Nebraska. So welcome to Ask the CIO, SLED edition, Ed. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Before we get started on IT issues, accomplishments, priorities, and, and heartaches, too, in the Cornhusker State, let's talk a little bit about your route, your route to the, the CIO position before you were first appointed by uh, Governor Pete Ricketts back in June of 2015. Interestingly, our previous guests have really, really run the gamut. Bob Sampson from New York, uh, he had a career in technology with IBM. And then Delaware CIO James Collins was on. He was an Air Force dental technician, believe it or not, and eventually a, a chief of staff to the governor. And then Washington, D.C. CIO Barry Krukoff was an early GIS guru and chief data officer with local and state government. But I believe that as for you, Samson, and me, state CIO was our first state job, right? Tell us about your route to the appointment. Wow, yeah, my, my route was uh, a little bit different also. I started out, uh, I'm an engineer, uh, industrial engineering and manufacturing. Uh, and I did that for about uh, well, several several years. And while I was uh, in manufacturing, of course, this was the mid-80s, uh, and um, I kind of migrated from industrial engineering to doing both industrial engineering and IT functions. And... Uh, eventually decided that the IT side of things uh, paid a little bit better, and the manufacturing side of things was at that time uh, very much um, the future was in doubt. We were a Tier 1 provider to General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler, and if you remember the 80s, it wasn't a really good time for, to be in manufacturing, especially in car manufacturing. And uh, so I moved over into the IT world. Uh, my background includes Blockbuster, Video. I was doing store support for the 5,000 stores out of their corporate offices in uh, Dallas, Texas, uh, and their data center out in McKinney, Texas. Um, moved from there to Ameritrade, uh, and now is uh, TD Ameritrade, um, and then moved from there to First Data, uh, taking different roles at each location, uh, operations and support at uh, Blockbuster, at uh, TD Ameritrade, it was more of an infrastructure and operations role. And First Data, it was a, at my choice, it was a software development role uh, that later turned into an architecture role, uh, leading an architecture team. So, and then go ahead. to the state. So, how did that, yeah. back, how do you think that background prepared you to be a state CIO? I think um, the, the broadness of my, um, experience. Of course, being on all sides of IT was important. And I've always talked about, you know, I know that the, the new trend now is, you know, you don't really have to be technical to be a, a, a CIO. And I, I, I firmly disagree with that. I think you have to have the respect to your people and you have to know what uh, what they're talking about and to make the right decisions. And they always say, well, surround yourself with people who can make those decisions. Well, if you haven't been there, if you haven't been in the trenches, if you haven't done that, I don't, I don't, I don't really see where you can identify those people. You have to understand what it's like at two in the morning to be on a bridge call trying to get a system up before 
you know, the uh, open day for trading uh, happens. You have to be in those pressure situations and understand how they feel and, and the technical things that can go wrong. Uh, and be one of the people who actually fixed them at one time. Uh, and if you don't have that empathy for your people and that knowledge, I think uh, you lose not only respect, but really an overall focus for, you know, what is really needed uh, to be a leader in this in this uh, part of the, the state. So how did your uh, actual appointment by the governor come about? Well, I worked for the governor for a little over 10 years. Um, the governor was the chief operating officer of Ameritrade. Um, his father actually started the company in 1975. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I remember reading about that relationship. It's really, uh, I always say there's, there's two critical areas of, uh, or ingredients, if you will, for a successful CIO. And one is that relationship with uh, the executive champion. And the second one is the, uh, the organizational structure of the CIO, CIO governance model. Um, I certainly believe that that's a, a critical element. Was that model that you inherited when you became CIO? Talk us, talk us a little bit about that before we go into your current, your current organization. Well, the model that I accepted when I first came to the state, there, uh, to be very blunt, there wasn't any model. We weren't following any ITIL standards. Um, we did not have uh, in place basic structures and that actually exists in the private sector, like uh, project management office. Um, we were very distributed across the state. Everyone had their own pro uh, policies and procedures, if any. Uh, very few were documented. Um, it was very much like having, you know, multiple companies that merged uh, together, but never truly united. Um, so it was like they were acquired but never merged, um, which we saw that I saw that in my in my past where we um, would merge with a company and do a very good job or we would just acquire a company and they sat out there and did their own thing. Um, and you really didn't gain any of the financial or quality benefits or efficiencies when you didn't fully integrate and fully merge that new company into your organization. And I saw that across the state here in Nebraska. So what did you do when you came on board? How did you go about changing it? And what does it look like now? When I came on board, the very first thing I did was, of course, um, discuss my plan with the governor, who fully endorsed it. He had seen and been part of multiple mergers with me at TD Ameritrade and uh, pretty much based it on the same strategy that I always based mergers on, and that is to combine and eliminate. So in other words, what do I mean by combining? Combining the resources um, and eliminate duplication of hardware and software. And so we also found that through the mergers in the past, you have to do it quickly or you don't do it at all. And, and I know that's the, the case right now in the states that have tried to consolidate for 18 years, and we've done it in 18 months. And so the very first thing we did was I talked to all the cabinet agencies at one time, and I did a, a uh, business case. And the business case showed that we could save – our most of our savings were in infrastructure. But in order to actually do the consolidation of infrastructure – I needed the resources because I didn't have enough resources in my agency alone. So we went to Gartner and we got 
uh, different uh, benchmarking uh, measurements, and we presented those. So we presented this as 100% a business case. Um, we expected attrition. We always had it whenever we did a merger uh, in a private industry, and we expected a certain number, and it was 20%, and that was exactly what we ended up with. The first six months, we concentrated on the network. So we started with combining all of the network engineers, actually physically relocating them into the office of the CIO. And their first job was to migrate their network onto our new network. We had designed a new network for this project that was more modern and more secure. And their job was to move all of their domains onto our one single domain get rid of the domain controllers, get rid of the firewalls, get rid of the excess switches. And so there was our savings. And in doing that, they also learned about the entire state. And we learned a lot of things about the entire state. And, of course, we we uh, enhanced a lot of um, security and we lowered costs tremendously. And did we get that 20% attrition? Yep, it, it comes naturally because really when you bring people out of their – environment where they were the big fish in a very small pond, and then you put them in a big pond, uh, there's a natural um, um, kind of a natural desire to, to, to go on and move on to something else for some people. For other people, it's a very exciting time because you can really learn from your peers, and you're not the only resource. And, and that's what was the case in many of our agencies. There was just one resource. That was it. <laughs> And now we're, you know, 10, 20 deep in some areas. That was our first stage. So your your uh, organizational structure then, are you actually a member of the governor's cabinet and report to him? Yes, I am a direct report uh, to Governor Ricketts. It's interesting because our first guest was Doug Robinson, who's the executive director of NASIO. And he, he told us, because I'm so interested in the CIO governance model, that over half the, the CIOs now report to uh, – to their governor, which is a huge change over the 20 years I've been a member of NASIO. It's good to see you there because mm-hmm. it makes your job, as we'll talk about a little more, uh, uh, it, it makes your job a lot more doable, if you ask me, if you have that kind of executive champion. And not only that, but you also have uh, the operational side, which is uh, is another big challenge, particularly a big challenge right. in the federal agencies, which are probably have a weaker CIO governance model on the whole than the states do. And uh, Doug agreed with that assessment. So Yeah, I, I agree also. Yeah. Uh, just from the little bit that I've learned. Yeah, it's interesting because in my conversation with uh, the same similar conversation with James Collins, we talked about this and, and how he took the job uh, and he has a similar, a similar uh, um, organizational structure as you do. And I said, would you have taken the job if you didn't? And he said, no, I, I, I don't see how you could be successful at that. And I had to agree with him. I, I had the kind of uh, ortho- policy and uh, operational authority in, in Massachusetts. But when I went to California, it was, uh, you know, you're in charge of $6 billion budget and you got 15 people and you got policy and, you know, the data center managers don't report to you. So it made it a big struggle to, to um, try to change that over the course of my uh, administration, as they say. Uh, tell us a little bit about your organization. You've got to think a budget uh, north of $100 million, right? Right. Um, so that is really its spending authority, right? So I don't get any general funds. 
um, essentially have the authority to spend that uh, up to $120 million. We're a fully chargeback organization, so I have to charge for all of my services, which um, when really when you're, you're – I, I kind of counterintuitive, I ended up making it much cheaper and lowering the cost for the agencies, which actually hurt me because my revenue started going away. So at the same time, I'm bringing in um, resources and having to pay for those resources. And at that time, I also was eliminating some of the things that I was charging for. A good example was the phase two. So phase one was network. That was six months. And phase two, we needed to have phase one set up so that we could move servers in. So phase two was the server engineers. Well, as we moved the servers in, we found there was um, preponderance of all the servers across the state were physical servers. So we didn't move the physical servers in. We virtualized those servers. And while by doing so, we ended up eliminating hundreds of servers. Well, the servers I was charging, you know, I would have been able to charge for had I brought them in as physical at much higher rates. But instead, I ended up uh, virtualizing them and actually lowering uh, the number of servers I could charge for. Now, the good news there is I ended up with a net uh, greater number that I could charge for all on virtual servers. We also consolidated even our, our uh, virtual software so that we only had one uh, across the state. So that took six months. We brought in um, over a 1,000 servers into our two data centers. When I got here, we only had one data center. Uh, we did pick up a second data center, which is also a great story. It's a co-lo with the largest county here in Nebraska, and we actually kind of barter. We put uh, servers and racks in their data center. They do the same here. And so at the end, we just... Uh, sorted out of who has more uh, racks in each data center. So it's a very cheap way to get a second data center. We have one data center in Lincoln, Nebraska, and another data center in Omaha, Nebraska. And in Nebraska, that's pretty much most of our population. Uh, we have 1.9 million um, population in the entire state. We have over a million in um, Omaha, Nebraska, and about 300,000 here in Lincoln. So Having the two data centers in our most popular areas uh, was an advantage in many ways. One is if both data centers uh, did have an issue, we wouldn't have very many uh, constituents even um, left to serve. <laughs> uh, the second one was um, they're exactly 50 miles apart, which allowed us to utilize a metro cluster to do replication. So what we do all of our data is replicated instantly between both data centers, and all of our critical apps uh, have a second instance built in Omaha and in Lincoln. So just like any high availability architecture, you'd have two instances in a data center. And then if you were uh, really going after high availability, which we had at like First Data and TD Ameritrade, is you'd replicate those two instances to another data center. Well, in our case, we kind of, because of uh, just budget constraints, Instead of having two instances in one data center, we ended up taking and putting one instance in one data center, one instance in the other data center. So 20 millisecond lag or latency between the two data centers. They all sit on one metro cluster, and so they all act like they're in the exact same data center, and they write uh, to um, the database instantaneously. 
And so at any time, if we had an issue at one data center, we could flip to the other data center. So we eliminated our DR site also because of that um, replication that we already have. And again, you know, hats off, we had to bring in a lot of um, a lot of folks in. Their jobs were from, if they came in from corrections, their jobs were to move the servers over uh, from corrections. If they came in from HHS, it was move the servers over from HHS. But we didn't. The one thing uh, that we um, qualified was if it's a physical server, we've got to move it over and, and make it a virtual so that we uh, got the cost savings uh, while we were doing that. Again, that took six months. Then the last six months, um, we consolidated desktop support. And before we consolidated desktop support, support 90% of the support was coming out of Lincoln, Nebraska. And Lincoln is in the south eastern corner of the state. So we would support agencies that had offices out eight-mile drive to the northwest uh, right here from Lincoln. So they'd have a problem. We'd have to um, send someone out. They would get out there. They would fix the problem. might take them an hour. They would spend the night. They would drive back. It was a, a great waste of time. So what we ended up doing was we d- divided up the state into eight regions, and we took any uh, site support folks that were in those regions, and we combined them all together and said, you're going to support the entire region, not just DHHS, not just transportation, not just banking. You're going to support everyone. And so we did staff up in areas where we felt we needed that, but the quality of service has increased dramatically. Now, when someone asks for support, they get the support within an hour or two um, versus a day or two in the past. What that did then was um, it allowed us to pick up more support. So today, this wasn't in our plan, but we have 93 counties in Nebraska. 74 counties use our services exclusively. They have no hardware, nothing on site, and they use our site support, which we call them now instead of desktop support, um, for their services. And it's time and materials. And they win because they don't have to employ those folks. And some of them didn't even have the resources to employ uh, the IT uh, staff due to just their size and budgets. So we lowered their cost. Uh, to come on to with the state, the average uh, decrease in cost for a county was 90% decrease in operating because we have virtualized. They had AS400s across the state. We virtualized all the AS400s onto one pair here in Lincoln and one pair in Omaha, again, giving them redundancy, which they never had before, at a tenth of the, of the cost. That took six months. So now we are actually done. And what's happened now is we're getting more and more people seeing the value of what they're getting. And so the city of Lincoln, for instance, is now in our data center. Oh, yeah, uh, I, wanted felt- to talk, I wanted to talk about that. Let me just shift this a little bit, Ed. You know, in the private sector, you're, you're really hitting on this uh, quite a bit, but, you know, in the private sector, you had experience with uh, relatively sophisticated management techniques and tools for process improvement. Uh, I, I think you're a Six Sigma black belt, as I recall. These are t- I am. These are tools that are not often visited upon the government masses, as it were. But in state government, you certainly inherited a rich target environment to focus those kind of skills. Tell us about that. Oh, that was a, that was the reason why I took the job. 
the governor was very open. Um, coming from private industry, uh, this was his first public service job also. And, uh, you know, he knew actually that that was a great selling point for me. Um, Ed, you know, you're a process improvement guy. You're a Six Sigma black belt. Your background is in education is industrial engineering. So process improvement is in your blood uh, with all these targets of opportunity. Um, I think you'd have a fun time uh, at the state. And he's absolutely right. Um, there are always areas that we can improve on. And um, it was there, – there was – Several areas I just needed to know which ones first, and actually I prioritized what was I going to go after first uh, to see what was going to bring the best benefit, cost, and service to the citizens of Nebraska, and that's really where we went for consolidation first. Um, we're expanding that to all areas, um, and and now it's really we're in the optimization stage. So now we're going after op, op dev. Um, and we're looking at the applications much closer, and we're qualifying, you know, is this a, a an application we want to continue to invest in, or is this one we need to migrate? Because it hasn't got the redundancy that's that's necessary for the criticality of the application. Or is this a, a an application that we'll just tolerate because, um, you know, it's has the support it needs, it, it, it serves its function, or is this an application we're going to eliminate because we're finding more uh, and better tools in other agencies as we consolidated, and we're just moving agencies onto those um, platforms? So as we consolidated, we found a lot of things that, again, it was like peeling back an onion. Um, as we started a consolidation, we had this one view, and we hit that, uh, and that was get all the servers and the network consolidated, get all the um, resources consolidated. And then from that, we, one, gained a tremendous amount of talent that was out in the agencies, and two, we gained insight into what was going on at the agencies and how similar some of the tools were that were being used. And so we have been really concentrating now on the optimization of eliminating that duplication of tool sets and actually upgrading our own tool sets. There were things that we found in the agency were, that were better tools than what we had at the OCIO, and so uh, we adopted uh, that technology. And, and likewise, we found better talent that actually brought our talent pool up. Um, so we were really fortunate in things that we, uh, we never thought uh, were even possible. So now, for instance, everything is on one network. We can automatically push up out push out updates um, to all PCs at one time. That was not possible in the past. Um, all of our tools can reach out to every endpoint we have, which wasn't possible in the past. And so we're just much more efficient at doing our job uh, than we ever were. Well, many of us realize that those who have ever attempted similar reforms, especially in the public sector, the road to hell is paved with the skulls of those CIOs who have tried and frankly have failed. So tell us about your efforts to overcome the barriers and challenges to affect such changes on a traditionally stubborn state bureaucracy. Yeah, I, you know, I think I, I grew up um, my entire career. As you can imagine, uh, when I went into a plant 
in manufacturing, it wasn't because it was doing well. It was because they knew they were they were uh, going to get a time study, or they were going to have a reduction in force, or they were going to realign their uh, redesign their assembly line. Uh, you never really had uh, an industrial engineer come in unless there was a problem. So I learned at a very early age, in my early twenties, that you know I was going to be eating lunch alone uh, probably <laughs> my entire career. Um, and so you, you you really get to where you try to not dictate anything. You try to uh, produce an image of where you're going that is so common sense that everyone sees it and everyone buys into it. So you have to communicate that from the very beginning. You have to have this great vision uh, that people go, well, that just makes sense. Why haven't we been doing that all along? Um, and if you then even with that, you're going to have some people that are not going to buy on, into it because they are not going to change. But the ones that do buy into it, if you can get those people that will 100% buy into your vision and then – you make sure that you get the right people to buy in. So in other words, those people, I really target those people that I know are very respected within the state. And those were the people that I really explained my vision in detail. And I did that one-on-one -on -one with them and said, this is what we're going to do, and this is why we're going to do it. And you know you've got them when they say, well, that just makes sense. Why did we wait so long to do this? And you get that core group of advocates that, actually put their jobs on the line and their reputation on the line with you. And if you can build that group of support, then whenever there is resistance, you really aren't addressing it as much as the, the people that are around you are addressing that. And so we, we knew we had the support of the governor in this initiative. But to be honest with you, as he gave me the advice, you know, right up front, sell, sell, sell. Sell the vision, Ed. You've got a great one. Just sell that vision. And I had enough people along the way that joined in that that actually helped me to explain to their own agencies once they they um, got uh, onboarded onto you know our system. And even today, uh, they're our best. You know, our best advocates, and these are some of the people that were business people in the agencies that just understood, and as they say, this was a common sense vision that we all could buy into. And so you really have to do that. If you get resistance, sometimes it's, it's necessary. Sometimes it's valid. And so you have to take that input. Um, and when you do get the input, you maybe change your vision so that they are included in that. Uh, but if it's just change for, you know, if it's just that they didn't want change because it was change, you know, th those are the folks that you kind of, um, you go around and you just move through. It's interesting, um, interestingly enough, when uh, uh, my old boss and now Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, uh, he told me in the middle of my data center consolidation plan, he said, I was the only one in favor of it. <laughs> And I said, Charlie, I'll take that as a compliment. The change agent is often a lonely position. And it's true. It's very, very <laughs> difficult to get some of those things done. And, and what you're saying is, is you've got to kind of make the business case and then gradually and persistently, you know, like Churchill said, you go from frustration to frustration to frustration, but you never give up. And 
consequently, that that uh, is how you a lot of times how you get things done, and uh, particularly in the public sector. Uh, you and you spoke about the you know you got an award for the data center consolidation. You only you talked about that for a couple of minutes, but that that's always a, a, a tremendous achievement for a chief information officer, particularly when they come in and they have them spread all over the state. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that award and, and what the uh, some of the metrics were. Well, we saved to date at least thirty million dollars um, across the state, and of course that that's an annual saving. So um, each year we are just you know first year year one you know save ten million. Well, then year two you save an additional uh, you know ten million. Well, then it starts to add up, right? And so um, the actual save is just increasing year by year, whether we do no, nothing at all, uh, furthering consolidation. And yet we, we are. We're, we're continuing to find ways to save money across the state because the consolidation opened up so many more avenues and opened up our knowledge of what we can do. But I think the, the real thing there was I have the exact same team that I inherited. I didn't go out and bring people from the private sector into the public sector. I had talent here, and it was frustrated talent. It was talent that when I would say, we need to do this, they were saying, finally, someone is, is going to take action. I think it surprised them how quickly I took action. The day after I talked to the cabinet, we were out at the agencies planning, um, you know, talking to them and planning the move. Um, so the quickness was, was very surprising to them. But I really credit my team uh, with really buying in very quickly to the values uh, that we were going to gain from this and by just supporting me all the way through it. And um, I think it's one of those things that, um, again, the compelling vision has to be there. Uh, and they wanted to make a difference. Uh, my staff has been here quite a while, um, all with a lot of tenure, and they really wanted to see a change. Um, and I use that to my benefit, um, that frustration and that pent-up um, emotion of uh, we, don't, we know things aren't working the way we want them to, and we want to make that change. Um, so I really credit my entire team for really just going out there and every day, as you said, change agents, they took a lot of um, negativity uh, on this journey. But once we got here, uh, it was an amazing thing. And, you know, the governor, after we won the award, came over and shook every single person's hand. It was hours. He was over here for hours. Nice. Uh, congratulating them. And thanking each and every one of them for their for their efforts, um, and asking, so what agency did you come from? Because our agency now we got, we have more people from outside of our original agency than we had you know to start with. Mm -hmm. So um, I think um, his personal touch of coming over um, was a big plus at the end. And I think the trophy was fantastic, but the uh, Having the governor's personal um, congratulations and, and personal thoughts uh, and thank yous was was really the, the kind of the tip of the of the uh, celebration. Pri as they say, priceless, Ed, priceless. 
Earlier this year, you spoke about uh, following up your infrastructure consolidation success and taking aims, uh, taking aim at similar economies in the application area. And of course, speaking of applications, particularly in the public sector, modernization of our legacy applications is really is critical. So I assume Nebraska is no different. And your application of an inventory and the Gartner time analysis must have highlighted this challenge. Oh, absolutely. And and one of the things that I think is really important is that modernization doesn't mean you throw out what you've got. Um, There were plenty of tools that I used in the private industry that were 10 to 20 years old and had been maintained and therefore were useful and were modernized. So whenever I read an article or I hear about, well, we're going to modernize, and I always ask the question, what's the benefit? What's the cost benefit? What are the citizens going to get out of this? What type of services are we going to how, – how is our service to the citizens going to be better? Um, and so we look very closely at is modernization to modernize really just – you know, I've, I've asked so many people that say, I want to get off the X system, and I'll say why. And by the time we get through the conversation, it has nothing to do with that system. It has to do with the processes and procedures that they hadn't updated or the fact that they hadn't patched it in years or the fact that um, they just really hadn't done the maintenance and the upgrades that needed to be done to that system. So I think in public sector, the first thought is let's just replace, rip and replace. And I think in the private sector, it was have we done everything to make this product successful? Shifting, uh, shifting our focus a little bit, they say uh, with elections that they have consequences, and Governor Rick is just overwhelmingly was, re-ele- was reelected. The post-election environment, as I call, recall, was always very interesting. Did all the cabinet officials have to turn in undated letters of resignation, or are you safe in your seat for a while, Ed? Uh, it looks like I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest today is Ed Toner, Chief Information Officer of the State of Nebraska. You're listening to Ask the CIO SLED Edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn. Ed, we were discussing the, uh, uh, the probability and the reality of uh, resistance to change. And I know, considering all the things we've discussed so far, uh, there must have been some moments when uh, your ideas weren't exactly uh, always welcome. Talk a little bit about that and how you address that kind of problem that we've all faced, not only in the public sector, but maybe to a greater degree there. We'll be faced at any time there's change, whether it's public or private sector. Really, internally, our major initiatives are, are again, to increase the productivity of the, of the state. And what I mean by that is making sure our processes and procedures are well documented, that we've streamlined the state where we uh, have customer touch points, uh, trying to get things to the customer, the citizen of Nebraska, as quickly and as efficiently as possible. So now that we have all of our infrastructure um, and our portfolio management projects really uh, underway and, and actually at completion, we really are, are looking for those subtle uh, things that we can do to make um, the citizen's experience with the state better and business experience with the state better. Will there be any major procurements during the next session? Not. We've had a few major uh, procurements that we're still working through. Of course, HHS is always having uh, 
some things that are going on there. We have a vehicle title registration project that's kicking off, uh, which will affect all of the counties. Um, and we have a project over at Labor right now um, that's an integration of, of some of the uh, tools that they currently have. So those will be ongoing throughout the next two years. And we met it uh, recently at NASIO in, uh, in the palatial states of uh, the California, San Diego, of course. And as oh, it was you, wonderful, wasn't it? It was always great to go back there. Uh, <laughs> as I used to call it to uh, the CIO from uh, Missouri, I said, it's Jefferson City on the Potomac. <laughs> 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 on the Pacific, on the Pacific. I got to get it straight. Uh, well, as you know, there's a major shakeup with the election. There's There may be between 15 and even 20 new state CIOs at our next NASIO, NASIO conference next year. I know you've spoken about the the cultural issues and the leadership style necessary for success in the public sector. What advice do you have for these newbies coming in? Well, you know, I, I think it's different depending on what their background is. Uh, obviously, if they come from the public sector, they they understand the mentality and they understand how to uh, navigate through the, the – there is some politics involved in the job. Um, and so they probably have – I probably have less um, advice for them other than, um, you know, really focus on something and, you know, get it done quickly, very much like um, our consolidation effort and things of that sort. Um, I think my biggest advice would be for those that have never been in the public sector. Um, I The pace is different, obviously, in public versus private. Uh, in private sector, you you know pretty much did things and you moved quickly, um, and there really wasn't um, that much dragging your, your feet. Uh, and I hate to say it that way, but obviously the pace was much quicker due to the fact that uh, we had to be agile. You had to be agile. You had to to put out product. You had to move quickly in order to stay in business. Um, that's not true in the public sector. Yeah. In the public sector, um, the the speed of deployment, you, you don't have another competitor really uh, looking down your back and, and trying to make sure that they get there first. Um, and so I think there's a mindset change of um, having to navigate and get things done and have um, some sense of urgency that you have to yourself bring to the job. In other words, um, in the private sector, the urgency was a cultural thing. We all felt it. Uh, in the state, the urgency is not a cultural thing. So you have to build that culture yourself, and you have to be the most excited person in the room at all times. And that's really what I would say to my private sector folks. You've got good people in public sector. You just need to be a different type of leader, and that is you have to be a little bit of a cheerleader, a little bit of a confidant, you know, make sure that they under, they really do feel comfortable with the roadmap that you've uh, – or that vision that you've set forward, and you better be the most excited person in the room. And I know that's pretty basic, but I really think that as the number one uh, thing that you need to be – uh, to succeed in yeah, the public I, sector. I think you're right. It's, as I think I said earlier, you know, it's Churchill going from, you know, you have to go from frustration, frustration to frustration to never uh, never surrender, never give up, and 
come to it with a, a sense of commitment and dedication. It really, it really is important. I understand what you're saying. Absolutely, uh, because there's a lot of um, we were here when you got here, and we'll probably be here when you're gone. Absolutely, that mentality. <laughs> the <laughs> heroines. So yeah, I love it. And, I love it. And so um, you have to just let them know you're so excited that you know what that enthusiasm is is contagious one, and it also lets them know that you're not going away. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, you were mentioning the Department of Motor Vehicles. Uh, it's always an interesting development when states and, and local merge applications are, are kind of feed off each other. I always wonder why there were 50 DMVs sometimes. And back uh, <laughs> back when I was in Massachusetts, that when electronic benefits began, and states actually formed uh, alliances, multi-state alliances to, to do that. And it really uh, it benefited everybody. And I know that uh, uh, another interesting situation occurs when local governments decide to abandon their own data centers and networks, et cetera, and hop on the state's infrastructure. I know Nebraska's a leader in that. Tell us about it. Oh, it's a, it's a great story and one that um, really I didn't foresee in my roadmap. Um, what we do, obviously, and, and, and most states do that, we, we publish our, our um, price lists and, and we let everyone know this is, this is what we charge uh, for a server or, or you know, what other, whatever service we have. And after consolidation really started to take hold, and uh, the counties started to see really the benefits, um, we have a, a group here called uh, NACO, the Nebraska Association of County Officials, and they invited us to talk. And during the, the discussions, we talked about a variety of topic, topics. You know, how do we do desktop support? How do we, you know, what are our, what's our rate sheets? You know, what do we charge? Um, what do we do for security? Um, and from those meetings, as their equipment was um, in need of replacement, so they were ready to refurbish, most of the counties, they all have AS400s and then some uh, Intel-based servers. As they kind of had that big purchase of that AS400 coming up, um, they would write to us and say, "We, you know, it just doesn't make economical sense for us to go out and buy another AS400 uh, when we see your rate, and um, it literally is 10% of what they were char- what what they were going to have to pay." So to date, we have nine. We have 74 county um, um, counties that have joined us, have their equipment, and get our support. Out of 93 counties, so 74 out of 93 to date, and we're getting about one county, two counties every month. So pretty soon we're going to have all the counties in our data center, riding our network, getting our support from our uh, distributed team that's out across uh, the state. And that was a lot of their fact. the, The basis of their decision was, hey, I can get local support very quickly now from the regional uh, offices that we created our costs of the hardware is lower and by the way the state is going to replicate everything for us which they didn't they all had single instances and so uh, all of that is replicated between our two data centers and so they really see the value proposition so now it's just we just sit back and we wait for the counties to come in we're not really advertising anything like that they're advertising for us now, how does that really um, intersect with the vehicle title registration project? Well, 
all that equipment now has to sit out at the counties. And since we have a good relationship with the counties, that project is going very smoothly uh, because the counties really are used to dealing with us and they know that we're going to be out there supporting that that equipment that we're putting into each and every county. Well, it's really nice to see that they have that open-minded approach and that business-oriented approach that they're not territorial about something like this because that can a lot of times lead to uh, uh, people throwing their hands up and saying, well, no, not, we're not, we don't want to go that way. It'll, our organization will now be smaller. So it's nice to see it happening. Hey, I wanted to switch over to something. It's called workforce. One of those things that always comes up uh, whenever CIOs get together, the hiring, recruiting, training, the whole nine yards. Uh, and a lot of states have done some really interesting uh, initiatives in the area, in this area. And when I heard about Nebraska's ad- approach to agile abilities and capabilities, it's really unique. Tell us about that. Well, that, that really came out of a failure of mine in the past. Uh, <laughs> In the private industry, I tried to. I, I've always enjoyed, um, you know, trying new things. I've always been cautious. On you'll you'll find out that you know I was like the last person to ever own a BlackBerry. Um, <laughs> I really like to see tried and true. And one of the things that is kind of a funny story. My my team came to me and said this was in private industry. We'd like to go agile. And I go, okay, so tell me what it is. And they really didn't know it. So I went and made them all get uh, scrum master certification so they would understand what they were about to ask, what they were even asking me. Well, we tried to do that and we were 100% waterfall. It was, it was very ingrained in, in the, in the culture. And so we tried to introduce agile and it really didn't go well. So, you know, failure, you know, note taken. Well, at the state, we had just gotten into Agile, and I realized that we really had to go a unique way. Uh, we had to go about it in a very unique way. And at the same time, I kind of I got a double, uh, a double advantage from this. One of the things we decided to do was there was a new team being formed, our enterprise content management team. And we were recruiting from Southeast Community College here um, they have campuses across the state, but a large majority of it is here in Lincoln. And we recruited from Southeast Community College, but they also took our input on the type of uh, curriculum that we would like them to offer. Well, the last thing we asked them to do was to teach them Agile, and we also asked them, don't teach Waterfall. Well, they came out of uh, the community college really only knowing Agile. Uh, to date, we have brought in more than, at this point, more than 30 to 40 uh, individuals. Um, we bring them in not as interns. We bring them in as what's called SOS or special office staff, which means we could pay them much better than an intern. Actually, we try to pay them pretty close to an entry-level developer. And to date, uh, we've only lost one, and that's two years now. Um, wow. So the attrition rate was very low. So we have a very young workforce. Uh, when I say 30 to 40, we have about 30 on the ECM team, but then we ended up getting another 10 or so that work in our networking and our um, server admin teams too. Same exact experience. They're still here with us uh, a couple years later. Well, I'll tell and, you. Well, go ahead. And, you know, so we ended up really getting the youth brought into, and I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be calling them early career professionals. <laughs> so I got my early career professionals. At the same time, I got Agile, and now the waterfall folks, the guys over on the web team, are looking over the cube going, wait a minute, 
we can really kind of use this. And so it's organically growing from that young group that we brought in from the community college. I've only got a minute or so left, Ed, but I can't let you get away with at least, at least mentioning about the Aggies beating LSU uh, in that basketball score last weekend. Um, what what a game. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was, uh, it was really something, wasn't it? I've been watching previews, uh, the, the views of the, <laughs> some of the highlights of it, quite a show. But finally, on a more somber note, but at the same time, same time elevating as well, in a far different way. And that's all the other activity around your alma mater, uh, George H.W. Bush. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that special relationship he had with uh, Texas A&M? I wasn't aware of it. Oh, my gosh. We, we loved him, and he loved us. Um, the students, both my nieces worked. Uh, one niece, actually, well, both my nieces graduated from Texas A&M, and my youngest niece worked for the Bush Library and met uh, the president and the first lady multiple times, and so did my other niece because she, he had a habit of actually coming into classes and speaking to the students. Mm-hmm. Um, what a gentleman. Um, someone who Texas A&M really embellishes the, you know, the, the spirit and the ethics and the things that really, I think, make America great. Mm-hmm. And George H.W. Bush... We were so proud when he picked our school, and I know that, uh, you know, all week, if you could see my my Facebook pages, you'll see my nieces showing pictures with the president and my friends, and um, the the Aggie community is a a very close-knit community. Uh, We have over 200 members here in Nebraska, Mm -hmm. and... Uh, we just we our relationship with him is 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 very tight and very close and we're very very proud to well, have him. We'll close we'll close with this with this Gigam Aggies, which as I understand it signals optimism, determination, and loyalty in the Aggie spirit, like yours, Ed. Thank you, sir. With that, we'll conclude our program today. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Ed Toner, Chief Information Officer of the State of Nebraska, and I want to thank you for listening. Content from this state and local program, which also includes curated news and original articles by yours truly, and other more esteemed authors, as I like to say, is part of the recently expanded AskTheCIO.com. Hope you can join us again each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time or listen to a podcast afterwards. Until then, bye for now. I'm John Thomas Flynn. You've been listening to Ask the CIO, SLED Edition with John Thomas Flynn on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 